Hello and welcome to the Outside and Active podcast. My name is Dom and I'll be playing host to conversations tailored for those who love the outdoors. Thank you for joining me on this adventure where I speak to a whole host of interesting guests with inspiring stories. For our next stop on this adventure, I am joined by the amazing Molly Hughes. Molly is a world record holding mountaineer and adventurer who is the youngest woman in the world to successfully summit Everest from both the north and south sides. And you know, if that wasn't enough, in 2019, Molly set off on her most ambitious expedition to date, which was skiing solo from the coast of Antarctica to the geographic South Pole, which after 58 and a half days and 650 hours of skiing alone in whiteouts, storm force winds and temperatures hitting minus 45, Molly reached the geographic South Pole on the 10th of January 2020, achieving her second world record. In this episode, Molly talks about how she got into doing all these crazy things in the first place and some of the intricate details of completing these incredible challenges. But before we get into this truly fascinating conversation, we just want to say thank you to the two amazing brands that are sponsoring this episode of the Outside and Active podcast. Meet LifeTidy. It's a safe, secure and stress-free organization app designed to assist you with all your life admin and give you financial oversight. From tracking monthly expenses to reminding you of important expiry dates and renewals, LifeTidy gives you back time and takes away the stress from your daily lives. We're excited to announce our partnership with LifeTidy and we want to support you as a whole, given the rise of cost of living and the fact we all spend an average of three hours a week just thinking about our life admin, let alone doing it. We wanted to provide you with a platform to support your financial and mental fitness so you can focus more on your physical fitness. And as we're outside and active, we've got an amazing offer for you to download the Life Tidy app today and stay focused on what's important, all at an exclusive discount of just £19.99p for a year's subscription when you use code FINANCIALLYFIT1122. You can sign up now by heading to lifetidy.co and using the code FINANCIALLYFIT1122. We also want to let you in into what is quite possibly the best kept secret in ultra trail running. A Pegasus event is more than just a challenge, it's a life-changing experience. Join Pegasus Ultra Running for an adventure in 2023 and explore the trails of Wild Wales at one of their six events with distances ranging from 30 miles all the way up to 50 miles. And what's the best thing is there's no cut-off times. These events are perfect for anyone looking to push their limits in a safe and supportive environment. Often described as the park run of ultra trail running, Pegasus pride themselves on providing an access to the ultra endurance experience. With Pegasus, you can run the rugged coast of South Wales, step into the heartlands of mid-Wales, or jump right into our newest race, leading you through the mountains of the gateway to Wales. The Pegasus events have something for everyone. Heck, do all six in 2023 and walk away with the Pegasus Slamathon trophy. Sign up in November to get 10% off a Pegasus event in 2023 and use code PEGASUS2023 to make the most of this special deal. And you can do that by heading to PegasusUltraRunning.com. Two really, really great opportunities there, so make sure you check them both out. But without further ado, let's head into this episode of the Outside and Active podcast. Molly, thank you very much for joining me on the Outside and Active podcast. How are you? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good, thank you. You um, have just travelled down from Edinburgh. We're in Birmingham at the National Snow Show. You are speaking later. Excited, nervous, looking forward to it. No, totally. It's awesome to be down here in Birmingham. Um, this is the first time I've come to the snow show. I just had a quick look around this morning and it's, it's epic. There's so many different stands, so many different people to chat to. Um, yeah, The energy place. of the snow industry 
is amazing. It? It's so cool. Like everyone from speakers to brands, uh, the visitors all kind of bundle in all as one. They love just having a good time. And yeah, no, it's good fun. It's, it's, good it's fun. different to other. Like I, I, mean, I guess I have my foot in lots of different outdoor industries yeah. and definitely snow sports is, is different. The energy is there. People are here for a good time. Absolutely. Um, different industries are a bit more serious, but no, I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying the vibe today. Good. Well, you can explore in a bit, but for now we're here to chat about you, your adventures, your story, um, and inspire some people that will be listening to this. We start the podcast with something every time, and it's a piece of advice that a guest from a previous episode will leave for you, unbeknowing that they don't know who it's going to be. To. But uh, your piece of advice is from Laura Crane, who is a surfer, snowboarder, adventurer, model, um, reality TV star as well. And her advice to you is to listen to the heart and not the head. So the question that kind of leads on from that is, do you find that you're an impulsive person with these adventures or are you quite measured and quite calculated with them? Yeah, I love I love that advice. And that's something I definitely try and do throughout life. Um, I think with the adventures that I've done, you've got to follow your heart at the beginning and you've got to really want it and you've got to really want to visit this place and be in this environment. Um, but then when you're there, that's when you've got to start using your head. Because um, if you don't and you follow your heart too much in those environments, that's when things can go Definitely. So a little bit of both, I think, is, is always good. I like that. Nice, nice. And um, another staple question that we have, what do you love about being outside and active? Oh, my God. What a big question. <laughs> I know. We'll be yeah, here for the next few hours. I know. <laughs> Everything. I think it's more than just, you know, in, enjoying the different sports I do. I think it's something that I need these days. And I think maybe lockdown and COVID taught me even more that being stuck inside is, is not a good place for me. So I need these big open spaces um, and there's, there's so many around the world to, to enjoy and explore. And you have explored them. And we will go into a couple of those adventures because <laughs> reading up about it and seeing your story, it's incredible. It's amazing, some of the adventures that you've been on. Um, but I'm really interested to know how you get into it. Uh, where did you grow up? How did you get into exploring the outdoors, not just the ones that are on your doorstep, but actually these crazy adventures that you will talk about in a bit? I mean, so I, I live in Scotland now and I have done for almost the last decade. So Scotland's definitely home. But originally I grew up on the south coast of Devon, a little place called Torbay, super touristy little uh, seaside resort place. Um, so as far from any mountains as you can kind of imagine. Um, but quite an outdoorsy lifestyle. Um, being by the sea, we did a lot of surfing, a lot of kayaking, a bit of rock climbing, lots of hiking up on Dartmoor. Um, so as a youngster, definitely out there doing stuff with my parents who, who also love the outdoors. The big expeditions really started when I was uh, 17 and my school was was kind of organizing this like charity expedition to go to East Africa and to do some kind of charity work out there and then climb this beautiful mountain called Mount Kenya in, in Kenya. Yeah. Um, and I managed to raise all the money, like bagpacking in supermarkets, go to car boot sales, got all the money together um, eventually and then head off to Kenya and climb Mount Kenya. And I think that's the, the moment that really like ignited my my interest in travel. And a bit about high altitude as well. Oh, wow. And were you traveling with other people as well that you were doing at the same time as you? Was it kind of like a, a group thing? It's or? A, group, a group from school. So yeah. Like lots of people, 16, 17 year olds, um, mostly girls from my school. And it was really, really cool. Like my school was, is, <laughs> I don't know much it is, but it's quite a like, reasonably challenged school. Right. Um, okay. So people from my school had never really traveled that much. So yeah. it's amazing to get us all there in East mm, Africa, where the, the culture is so different to what it is in our seaside resort in Devon. Um, so yeah, 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 definitely. Super eye-opening, I think, for all of us. And how do you go from that, at what would you have been, 16, 17, sort of, to then 
Would it have been four years later? Yep, four or five years later. Summiting Everest. Yeah. That's quite a jump. I mean, Mount Kenya is obviously no mean feat, but the world's tallest mountain. Uh, that how what are the steps in that four years? It was a quick turnaround. Really? Sure. Um, so the ambition wasn't there for the first few years. And I guess the first few years, as I went through school and uni, um, I just wanted to travel. And I wanted to climb different mountains and experience different cultures and different parts of the, of the world. So in term time, I would get jobs, save up as much money as I could, spend my student loan. And then as soon as that long <laughs> summer comes that you get a uni, I'd head off with a group of friends and travel to different places, climb mountains in the Himalayas, in South America, back to Africa a couple of times, to the Atlas wow. and East Africa, um, to the Alps. I just did as much as I could in that time, just enjoyment and having fun with friends. Um, but the idea for Everest came in my final year at uni because I was studying sports psychology. And at the end of uni, you have to do your big project dissertation, 10,000 words about any subject you want within sports psychology. Yeah. Um, and I'm not the best, I'm not the most academic person in the world. So I knew it had to be something super interesting mm-hmm. for me to actually like commit to it and write about it. So I decided to investigate the psychological experience of climbing Mount Everest. And I had this, this um, interesting Everest because it's the highest mountain in the world. It's the most famous mountain in the world. And I kind of thought that people's psychology going into those expeditions must be really interesting. Like it's, it's so much more than anything else. Um, and that's what I did. I interviewed seven guys who'd all, all summited. Oh, wow. And what was, what were the findings? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Did they go through I mean, a lot? <laughs> very, I mean, the, the paper, very amateur, like I was 21. Not that I could have it, but it was like a qualitative study, which yeah. meant I could just look at different people's opinions. I like that. That's a good idea. Super broad, <laughs> I guess. No numbers, yeah, just no feeling. numbers, yeah, no stats. Um, but I guess what I learned was that all of these people had very different experiences, um, but there were a few kind of themes that ran through it. Um, things like needing a super strong motivation. And some of them had different ones. Like for some of them, it had been a childhood ambition that they'd worked towards for such a long time. Some of them had just been a group of friends that got together and said, okay, do you want to come on this trip? We're going to try and climb Everest. Um, so different motivations, but they always had to be pretty strong. Um, but I think the main thing I learned from the project that probably served me with all of my expeditions was that you need to be super pragmatic about yeah. everything you do. Um, never focusing on the summit, just focusing on the day ahead of you and even breaking that down smaller and focusing on the, the next hour ahead of you or the next few steps ahead of you and not getting uh, like – psychological pressure from the, the bigger picture or the bigger goal. So really breaking everything down, um, which has, has helped. Yeah, I can imagine. It's interesting you said the motivation. Where does your motivation come from to go on these different adventures? And where's that? It's almost like an itch, isn't it, to do something new or different yeah. or bigger? I mean, it's a good question. I think it's changed a lot. Mm. So I guess I've been doing these, well, I'm 32 now. I did Everest the first time when I was 21. So over a decade um, of doing these kind of expeditions. And it's totally changed throughout it. I think the first time I wanted to do it, I had studied Everest for so long and it was so interesting. I just wanted to see it with my own eyes. But I also wanted to kind of prove to myself that I could do something because I think I was pretty shy at school yeah. and at uni. And I never really shouted about myself or things I've done I wanted to do. Um, but I kind of felt like I didn't want to be the shy person. I wanted to gain some kind of confidence which probably isn't a good excuse to go and climb Everest. But I think it was like underlining it all. Um, I mean, there's some other things you could yeah, do, but climbing Everest yeah. will achieve that, yeah. <laughs> just, so, yeah, that's what I did. Just to give people some context of, you're not just someone who has summited Everest. You are the youngest woman in the world and the first English woman to successfully summit from the north and south side. Now, the first thing that when I say that and people hear that that comes to my head is, 
that's incredible. That's amazing. That's a young age to be going out and doing that. The second thing is there's a north and a south side that people go up. My ignorant head would have thought, oh, there's just one one path, path being a very, you know, <laughs> scaling it down a little bit, but one route that people go up, there's, but there's a north and a south side. So the question there is, what's the difference between the north and the south side? Yep. So there's actually loads of different routes that people okay. do, like maybe over... I'm making this up, but over 20 that people have done. Um, the two main ones that people do are the north and the south side. So most people that climb Everest will go on either of these routes. Um, the south side is busier. It's on the Nepalese side of the mountain. The north side is on the Tibetan side of the mountain. Um, the south side is a little bit busier. Um, it's got different obstacles, different yeah. dangers, different challenges. Um, the north side is the side that I did the second time. Um, and that's thought to be much colder, which it was windier because <laughs> it's on that north side of the mountain. And it's more of a, like a technical summit day. So you're scrambling, climbing over big kind of rock structures um, on narrow ridge lines, And you spend longer on the north side, above 8,000 metres in that place that's called the death zone, where there's hardly any oxygen. Um, it's a nice name yeah. for a part of a mountain. Yeah, for sure. Somewhere you want to go and hang out. Yeah. Um, so the north side, I would say, is, is harder. It's more of an undertaking, um, but it's less popular. So you don't as much get the big queues and... and people there. So you summited it once from which side was it first? So the south, south side first, first yeah. when you were 21 yeah. and then 26 yep. you then go from the north side. Yep. Climbing Everest is something that whatever percentage of the population of the world will do it not a high amount but why do it twice? Was it <laughs> thinking oh well, I could have this record to my name it's something that I want to go oh, I just want to do it twice why more than once so I didn't know about the record until actually we got off the mountain I oh, really um, I thought I think I thought I was going to be the first English woman but I didn't know about being the youngest yeah um, so it was quite a cool surprise when I got back to Kathmandu um but I went back for the mountain I think for a number of reasons the south side when I was 21 was incredible it was an amazing two months we spent on the mountain but unbelievably hard like I suffered every second of every day on that mountain from the altitude, from the, mm. the pressure, from the physical exertion. Um, it was so much and there was quite tricky around the summit day. There was lots of people. It was kind of the first year where you got the crowds heading for the summit that we've seen more and more over the last mm. few years. Um, so it was tricky. Um, a lot of people got into trouble that year and it was, it was, it was amazing. And I feel so lucky to have spent the time, but it was absolute suffer fest. Um, really? So when I got home, I didn't want to see another mountain again for, <laughs> for a little while. Um, but then the, the thought of the north side was always there in my head. Um, of the guys I interviewed in my dissertation, half did the south side and half did the north side. So I felt like I knew it a little bit from mm. interviewing these guys. The route was so different. The routes are, um, it's almost like being on a different mountain because they're in different countries, completely different as you go up. And the only place you meet is right on the summit. Wow. Um, and I was, I always felt like I, I wanted to experience this side of the mountain, go back and, and see Everest in a slightly different light. Um, and maybe, uh, I don't know, do it in a slightly better style, less, maybe less suffering and try and actually enjoy it. And you would have learned a lot more, I suppose, in that five years as well. Absolutely. I was definitely like five years a better mountaineer. I'd climbed many more places around the world. I had a really amazing team on the north side. And yeah, I'm so glad I did go back for it. Quantifying the, the cold, it's minus 35 degrees at times. Yes. Can you prepare for that? Or is it just when you get to that point, obviously it's a gradually gets colder and colder, but do you just, is it, I have not experienced this type of cold before? 
you know, the cold isn't too bad on Everest. Okay, <laughs> um, nice. I know it sounds I like bad. That. So the, walk in the park. <laughs> <laughs> the coldest part is the summit day. And the whole right. expedition comes down to the summit day or summit night, I should say. Because you leave the final camp usually, well, for me, it was around 8 p.m. So you're starting in the dark, it's pitch black. Um, and that's when you feel the cold the most. But that's when you've also got your massive down suit on, which is like a sleeping bag with arms and legs. You've got your hood up. You're breathing um, the bottled oxygen, which yeah. has a slight warming effect on your body. And you're moving. You're moving incredibly slowly, but you're never really stopping. Um, and you're just kind of thinking and focusing on sunrise. And then when the sun comes up, you, you warm up a lot more. Um, so the cold wasn't too much of an issue. Um, I'm, I'm saying that I got a tiny bit of frostbite in my fingers. So I guess it was a little bit of an issue on, on the south side. Um, but it was much colder in later expeditions, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk we'll about it. <laughs> um, follow a couple of bits about Everest. I think we see a lot more about Everest now. I mean, 14 peaks, you see um, when Nims is going up it and it's, it's almost like a, a queue. What is climbing Everest really like? Because I think my, again, ignorant head might think, oh, it's just this, there's no one on it. And when, you know, it's very infrequent that people go up, but what is it really like? It's a good question. And I think so many people have ideas of what they think mm. Everest is like. Um, the, the press always have quite a negative view of it. They always talk about dead bodies and rubbish and yeah. shoes, um, which to an extent there are th things there, but they also have quite a negative view, I feel, of, of Everest climbers. Um, and I think the majority of Everest climbers are outdoorsy people that love the environment and the outdoors that they're in and they want to go and have their chance to spend time on, on the highest mountain in the world, which is, is incredible. Um, for me, it was like such an honour to be on the mountain and every like step I took, as much as I was suffering, I was like, oh my God, I'm so lucky to be here. Like not many people are going to be here and see this. It took a lot of work to get there mm. in terms of raising the sponsorship and training and, and getting accepted onto a team. So I felt so grateful to be there on this historic mountain where so many stories have played out over the years. Um, so for me, it's an incredibly special place. When you get to the top and you can see the curvature of the earth and you see the shadow of Mount Everest, um, it's amazing. Wow, you yeah. can literally see, obviously it was, it was clear when you were there, yeah. you can see the curvature of the earth and that feeling must be almost unrivaled. Yeah, it's incredible. I think the coolest thing for me was, was the shadow. So you get to the top if you're doing good time around sunrise mm. and as the sun comes up behind Everest it like pushes this shadow of the mountain onto it's not even on the land it's like in the atmosphere probably in the stratosphere um this perfect pyramid shape of the mountain you don't realize how perfect the mountain is until you see the shadow of it that must be um, beautiful yeah, it was mind-blowing I caught out the corner of my eye and I was like oh my god what is that pure natural beauty yeah. like the world in its purity. it feels wow. like you're yeah it feels like you're in another world Amazing. so to me it's a super special place I know yeah. there's definitely issues on the mountain with overcrowding when you get the small weather windows to the top and that causes dangerous situations. Um, so there's definitely things going on, on the mountain, but I don't think that should take away from how incredible it is. What's the main difference between summiting, climbing up and then descending? Um, yeah, a lot. It takes a long time to get to the top. Um, so I guess in total it's almost like five or six weeks. Wow. Because you, you basically go up and down the mountain to acclimatise. So you kind of climb up to camp one, come back to base camp where you rest and recover for a few days. After camp two, back down to rest. All up to camp three, which is on the south side at like 7,100 metres. So you're close, you can see the summit, but then you come all the way back down and rest again. So that process is to just acclimatise our bodies, get ourselves used to the lack of oxygen. Um, and then you sit tight at base camp and you wait for the weather to be completely perfect. Um, sometimes you're waiting for a, a long time. 
Um, and then when amazing. you get your weather window, you head to the top in about six days. Um, and when you finally get to the top, the descent happens. And the descent, I think, is probably the most dangerous part. Really? It's the quickest. You can get down off the mountain in literally a few days. Um, but you've spent all the time getting to the top. You've been in the death zone for maybe 12 hours. You're psychologically and physically exhausted. Um, so that's when people can make mistakes. And most people, I think, that die on Everest, die on the way down. Not the really? Way down. That's interesting. I, I mean, obviously that that's interesting, sad, but interesting. Um, but I would have no idea about the acclimatization process of going up step by step. That must be quite frustrating, but almost like, I just want to get, want to get up. I feel good. People always think it's going to be a bit frustrating, but actually you feel rubbish like the oh, okay. whole time. Um, altitude, I can imagine altitude, really yeah. has an effect. And like the first time you get to maybe six and a half thousand meters by camp two is you get there and your head's banging and you look up at the mountain and you're like, there's no way I'm ever going to get to the top of this mountain <laughs> another over 2000 meters. Um, but then the next time you come up, you feel that bit better because your body started working, it started acclimatizing. You can push up to camp three. By the time you get to camp three, you're like, oh my God, I can't go any further. This mm. is it. Um, but then you come back and then you, you go for it. So it's it's incredibly useful for, for our bodies. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. But if that wasn't enough, in 2019, you took on a, a, a challenge, an adventure to solo ski from Antarctica to the geographic South Pole. How far is that? And why have you, why did you decide to do this? <laughs> so I went from, I started a place called Hercules Inlet, which is an area where the, the sea ice meets the land mass of the continent. And from that point to the South Pole is just over 700 miles. It's like 1,100 kilometers. Mm. Um, and why? It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I asked myself that a lot when I was on the ice. Um, I, I was always very interested in Antarctica. It's again, one of these places that not many people are going to see. It's this vast frozen mm. continent. It's the world's biggest desert, um, interestingly, yeah, because of yeah. the, the lack of um, rainfall, snowfall. <laughs> um, but it's I was somewhere I'd always wanted to go. But get down there is near impossible unless you're like super, super rich. Um, you can go as a tourist and pay a lot of money to, to mm. go there and experience it, which was never going to happen for me. Um, so I thought about some different expeditions that I could do, um, ones that I could hopefully raise the sponsorship for to get me down to Antarctica. Um, and with the sponsorship of these expeditions, it's almost harder to raise the sponsorship than it is to climb Everest or ski to the South Pole. Yeah. Unbelievably hard. Um, and you always need a bit of a unique selling point. So I did some research into it and I realized that if I skied from this point to the, the South Pole, I'd be the youngest woman to do that. And then you can use that USP to try and attract different sponsors yeah. on boards. I can imagine it being the tough part of these adventures because it, like you said, it's unless you're mega rich and have the time to do it, it takes a lot to train, get there, the cost of everything. So it's obviously very important to get these sponsorships. And sure. how long does it take to kind of build that up before you actually set off? Like years and years. Really? Um, and it's, it's full of so much disappointment. You think you've got a good lead and then mm. it doesn't happen. Um, I think with the hardest one was Everest the second time to get a sponsorship. Interestingly, it took me like three years. Um, I thought <laughs> wow. I was going to go in 2016. I was like planning for it, trained for it, was almost ready. And the money just didn't come in. Oh, so no. I delayed it for a year. Um, Antarctica, I got to, I was leaving in November 2019. And I got to about September. And I still needed a big chunk. Um, so it was real panic stations then. Um, but we managed to get the money just at the last minute. Oh, gosh, how lucky. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Where does the solo element come from? Is that part of the challenge? Is that what people <laughs> do? Or is it, and, and just how solo is it? Yeah, so it's pretty solo. Yeah. Um, so... 
I think I wanted to do Antarctica solo. You don't have to, absolutely. There's great teams. You can be guided down there. Um, go with friends, people you like, which I would do if I went back. <laughs> um, but I, I think I wanted to do it solo um, because in all of my other expeditions, I'd always had guides, amazing guides, amazing Sherpa guides, but there was always somebody to like defer to. There was always somebody to make the final decision. Um, it was always a conversation, but it was always their final decision, um, which was cool. Mm. Needed on Everest for sure, especially when I was young. Um, but I really wanted to see if I could kind of take on that responsibility myself. And instead of taking a group with me, I wanted to just take myself and see if I could look after myself for the 58 days it took in, in total. Um, if I could make all the right calls, if I could be sensible as I possibly could to, to survive down there. I mean, that's incredibly brave. And you said it's the most ambitious thing that you've done. Why is it more ambitious than Everest? I think mostly because of that solo element. Yeah. Um, there was no one really to fall back on when I was out on the ice. Um, and your question before was how solo was it, which was a really good question. Um, so there's a logistics team called Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. That's amazing. I love good that name. name. Yeah. <laughs> um, that does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Um, and they're a big American company and they support the logistics of the expedition. They flew me from the kind of base camp on the edge of Antarctica to my start point. And then each night at 8 p.m. I had to call them, give them my location. Um, and if I needed, there were doctors on the end of the phone that I could talk to. Um, if I got really stuck, they could hopefully, if the weather was all right, come yeah. and rescue me. Um, so there was the backup there, which is absolutely needed down there. Um, but day in, day out, I was, yeah, on my own. And to, to give some context of the 700 miles, 650 hours of skiing alone, 58 and a half days. Do you get bored? How do you stop yourself from going insane? What what just keeps you going? And and then time as well. I, I take it there's obviously a way for you to tell the time so you can structure your days, but what's the light sort of split between the 24 hours as well? So the, the main trip um, is so much more psychological than physical. Like physically, super hard. It's like you're skiing uphill all the way to the South Pole, you're pulling a 105 kilo sled behind you. So super physical over some pretty challenging terrain, deep snow, sestrugi, these big kind of waves. But I think to me, it was probably 70, 75% psychological mm. just to go through that day after day, hour after hour. Um, and I think the way I got through that was being really structured. Um, and I guess in normal life, I'm probably not the most structured person. I think I hope I'm quite laid back. Um, but down there, I knew I had to be. So like wake up at the same time each morning, spend two hours melting snow and ice for drinking water for the day, cooking, eating breakfast, putting my tent down. Then at 8 a.m. I wanted to be on my skis and moving. And I would ski for an hour and a half. I would stop for a 10 minute break, not a minute longer, not a minute less, where I'd eat and drink. Um, I would ski for another hour and a half. And I'd do that for 10 or 11 hours a day. Um, so I think that structure really helped. At some points when the weather was super bad, you'd just focus on that hour and a half block of skiing mm. and you think, okay, in an hour and a half, I've got my 10 minute break. I can have a Snickers. I can have a drink. I can relax a minute for 10 minutes. Um, so I think that really helped having the, the structure there. Um, also your, your mind goes to, to weird places. Yeah. So like 58 days in total, I didn't really know how sane I'd be at the end. Um, and you need to almost separate your head from your body sometimes. And I think when something becomes so mechanical, um, that you can do that. I guess a good example is when you're like driving down the motorway and your head's somewhere else and you're just driving in a straight line. And then suddenly you're like, oh my God, I'm actually driving here. <laughs> but you're thinking about all sorts of different yeah. things. Um, and that's actually like a slowing of your brain waves. That when something becomes so routine and mechanical that 
your head can disappear a little bit and start imagining different situations, having different memories, um, which is, is what happened. It took a bit of work after like a few weeks, but after yeah. a few weeks when I got used to all the movement, um, yeah, you could just try and lose your head. I mean, there's there's so many things that you just said. I mean, the 100, 100 kg uh, sled that you're pulling, which I presume contains all of your food yep. and supplies and everything like that. The food you're eating, 4,500 calories a day, yeah. which is over twice the amount that basically you should be eating a day. But at the end, you uh, you lost 10 kilograms? Yep. Purely just from the movement and is it any, anything to do with, yeah, gosh, you're just burning so many calories. Yeah. I was probably, I reckon I was probably burning around 5,000. Wow. probably some good calculation we could do, but to lose 10 kilos, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was probably burning five, five and a half. I mean, that's some workout. That's some, yeah. that's, that's some weight loss strategy <laughs> that you probably wouldn't recommend to people. <laughs> but it, the kind of reverting back to the monotony of it, of course, one, for, you know, skiing, yeah. that movement, but also is there anything to look at in the landscape is there a change of anything or is it just you're moving up one gradual incline with white around you so there's there's not really anything there um and i mean there's no wildlife at all people always say did you see penguins i didn't see anything right right in the middle of antarctica nothing grows nothing lives not even bacteria grows down there because it's so inhospitable Mm. um you don't see much there's like a few mountains at the beginning um, and then halfway there's a small mountain range and then there's nothing really to the South Pole. Um, so there's nothing like on the horizon, but underfoot it changes and it changes quite a lot. Like the whole route is split into degrees of latitude and the first degree is pretty steep underfoot. It's often pretty wet, deep snow because you're closer to the coast. You then cover a few flatter degrees and then you get to an area where you've got loads of this sastrugi where you get steep hills and on top of each hill is these massive waves in the snow. And some of them can be six foot high that you've got to get over, pull your sled over, get down the other side. Um, so underfoot, it changes a lot, but but nothing on the horizon. Um, and I guess that the hardest part of the whole trip was right in the beginning because I had like whiteout conditions for eight and a half days straight. So just explain what whiteout. So whiteout is when the, the visibility comes right down in, into your face and you can't see more than about a meter in front of you. So left looks the same as right and up looks the same as down and it's just cloud. And it ha- started on day two for my expedition and it stuck on me until day eight and a half. Um, so that was the biggest psychological test of, of just seeing nothing apart from staring down at your compass, hoping you're going in the right direction. Um, that was unbelievably hard. A very silly question and a very serious and amazing challenge. <laughs> Did you have a song that was ever stuck in your head for so long? Because in daily life that happens and you're doing other things, but when you're just moving forward, is was there something that was stuck in your head? I think so many. <laughs> I had I had a bit of music, so I had this really old iPod. There's one where you spin around the wheel. Yeah. Um, I had like thousands of songs on it. Um, and I could listen to it maybe like an hour or two a day before the batteries got juiced from the cold. Mm. Um, but I could only listen to artists that begin with A because I had to take my glove off to spin the wheel. You don't um, want to be taking your glove off. Don't want to go down to the bees. So I had A's. So lots of um, Adele, Amy Winehouse <laughs> was there a lot. Arctic Monkeys, ACDC. Yeah. So a lot of those songs you know, <laughs> rolling around my head. And completing that challenge, it was your second world record, youngest woman in the world to make that journey. How was that feeling? Not even when you finished, but I'm interested in that last, when you kind of, do you know when you wake up and you think this is going to be the last half day it was? How's that feeling waking up to begin with? Yeah. 
So I think like the night before that, I could have made it to the South Pole. And I saw it on the horizon. It's the first thing you see for a long time. It's this massive like American science space. Oh, wow. Actual buildings, all sorts going on there. And it's like slightly elevated. So you see it from, I think it was maybe like 20 nautical miles away. Um, How many days before is it? Can you see it? So you, you could do that in a very long day if you wanted to. So maybe maybe a day, day and a half. Um, oh, wow. And, you could just see it there. Yeah. <laughs> and I skied so fast. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to... I was thinking so much, am I going to go tonight? Am I going to ski through the night to get there? Um, and I got about five nautical miles away. And I just kind of felt this huge amount of like trepidation and almost like fear of getting there. I think because I'd been alone for so long mm. and I'd just been focusing so much on each day. But then at the pole, that kind of signified, well, other people, there'll be people to see and, and talk to. Then from there... I'd be like reintroducing myself to the world, to society, to in a few days time, opening my laptop for emails and social media and all of that stuff that I hadn't had for two months was all there. So I felt this huge amount of trepidation that night. So I just decided to stop and I, I camped five miles, five nautical miles from the pole. I spent one more night alone in Antarctica, um, woke up super early that next morning and I was ready then. Um, I feel like maybe I could smell the breakfast being cooked at this house. Yeah, like, actually, I would not quite like to stop <laughs> yeah. that. But that's really interesting because, again, my uh, people listening to this, my head would probably go, oh, I just want to stop now. I want to get there. I want to stop, you know, relax. But actually, the main issue is this has been 58 days of your life. It now basically becomes norm. You haven't interacted with people at all, if you know, a tiny little bit. You, seeing people, it's like being in a box. Yeah for 60 days and then all of a sudden opening the door to people that are going to be wanting to ask you questions, see how you are. It's going to be very overwhelming. Yeah. So actually it's obviously the physical element is one thing, but the anxiety of seeing people is another yeah. point. So how was it when you then finally got to that point? Yeah. Well? And it was actually amazing. Like yeah. When I got into the South Pole, so that the logistics company have a small camp just on the outside. Um, and there was like the camp manager who I know quite well. He was amazing to like have your first hug in a long time. <laughs> Um, and then there are a few other people who've been doing similar trips and they all kind of ended up at the pole at the same time. So there's maybe like six or seven of us there, a few staff, um, for a couple of days, which is a really nice slow way to reintroduce, I think, to mm. people. They'd, a lot of them had done similar trips before and they'd just completed one. So they knew exactly what was going on. Um, and we just relaxed for a couple of days. We chatted through things. We drank beer. We just had an amazing time. But that went straight yeah, to your head. <laughs> And then from that point, you fly back to the, the big camp on the edge of Antarctica, where there's maybe, I don't know, 150, 200 people. So you spend a couple of days there, had my first shower um, in like 62 days or something. Wow. And then from there, I flew back to Chile, where you're in a, a small city, and then finally back to Scotland. So it was a slow reintroduction, which I think That's probably nice. helped with, with my, uh, my, my mindset. How was the food provision? Did you have plenty of food? I imagine that made up quite a lot of the 100 kilograms. And then yeah. as the days go on, it gets lighter and lighter. So I guess there's the temptation to try and eat as much food so it's lighter, <laughs> yeah. but also oh, I've got to make sure that I might be out yeah. here for two months. Totally. So I think at the beginning, the food was maybe 54 kilograms of food. And it's these kind of ration packs, freeze-dried food that you've got to pour boiling water into, um, which are fine, totally fine. Hmm. Um, but it is that, that fear of running out which was there for the whole first half of the trip. Because at the beginning, in the eight-day whiteout, in the eight-day storm, I was super behind schedule. Um, I was trying to ski into like winds gusting 50, 60 knots. Um, so I got about maybe six or seven days behind schedule at that point. So then you've got that constant anxiety and fear that, have I got enough fuel? 
to melt snow and ice on my mm. stove for drinking water? Have I got enough food to last me to the pole? Um, so I made the call maybe just before halfway to get a resupply. So the logistics company would fly in, drop a bag of food where they dug a hole, put it in a hole, put a flag on it, and then I found it on my route along. Um, and I'm so glad I did that. Mm. Like if I hadn't have done that, I could have said my expedition was unsupported, which is one of those words you can use if you don't get resupplies along the way. Um, but giving that up and getting the resupply and being relaxed for yeah. the rest of the trip and not rushing to the end yeah. was the best decision I ever made. Definitely. And this question could either be really stupid or actually could have an interesting answer. <laughs> How are you navigating towards the South Pole? <laughs> are you holding a compass walking towards South yeah. or is it any more complex than that? Uh, only slightly, only slightly. So okay. I've got a GPS where we've put in the, like a few waypoints. There's maybe seven of them, seven, six or seven of them for the 700 mile stretch. So some of them are like a hundred miles apart. Some are maybe 20 miles apart in the kind of more dangerous crevassed areas. Um, so I look on my GPS, I find the bearing, I plug that bearing into my compass, which sits on like a chest mount in front of me because I've got my hands on ski poles um, and I've just got to stare at the compass, get the arrow in the box um, all day long. So yeah. in the whiteout, it was interesting when you're just staring down at this compass, trying to stay in a straight line because it's so like disorientating. Don't want to go, any, want to go any further than you need to. Yeah, exactly. And that area at the beginning where there was, I was in the whiteout, mm. there was quite a bit of crevassing. Um, so you wanted to avoid that as much as you can. Um, so yeah, following the compass all the way. Were there, what was the most dangerous thing about that journey? Was it the cold and supplies and stuff like that? Or was there anything about the terrain that would have been dangerous? Um, the terrain, the, the main things would be crevassing, which happen closer to mountain ranges. So at the beginning, there's a little bit, um, but if you navigate well on the GPS bearings, you can avoid it. Um, it was harder in the whiteout and scarier. Oh, every single step. More than, more than a metre. Um, but it was okay. Made it through. But I think that the biggest danger is, well, it has to be the elements, but the elements are reasonably controllable. I think the biggest danger is not being on it, like mentally. If you're not on it and you push yourself too hard one day or you take risks, then that's when it's going to get you. Like there were, there was maybe only one day where I decided not to ski. And it was in that eight day storm and it was maybe minus 45 with wind chill and it was gusting 60 knots. And the scariest thing is taking your tent down in the morning and pitching it in the evening. Because when it's gusting that strong, if you let go of that tent, it's it goes. gone. It's absolutely gone. And if you lose your tent, you're pretty screwed. There's, there's no shelter and in that storm. Rescue will be really hard. Um, so yeah, the scariest part was putting my tent up and down, securing it onto my sled, like doubly clipping it on. Um, yeah. Was there a point where you just wanted to stop or you thought you wouldn't be able to do it? Um, it's not really. I never really wanted to stop. You want to stop, but <laughs> you never to, really yeah. want to stop. I get that, yeah. I guess there was a bit of uh, after the storm when I realised I was six, seven days behind schedule, that was the only time I think in my whole life of these expeditions where I felt like this big black cloud kind of sitting on me and all of these really negative thoughts like, what on earth are you doing down here? Has your ego pushed you down here? Like, why, why on earth do you think you could survive for two months in Antarctica? Um, and I think it was kind of the trauma of the, the first week and a half in the storm. Um, but once I managed to sort my head out, focus again which is so much harder when you don't have a team around you yeah. no one to give you a hug no one to, to have a laugh with um but once i managed to get through that mindset change i started making better decisions and, and things were good from there yeah the self-discipline really strikes out to me and to have that like you said earlier hour and a half 10 minutes yeah. and if you break that it's just oh just 
or 20 sure. minutes and then all of a sudden it becomes a bigger issue so your self-drive and motivation must be unbelievable so i, I, I mean commend it's not, that. in normal life it's absolutely not like that <laughs> <laughs> like, i think it's something i learned quickly in Antarctica. <laughs> i mean we focused on these two adventures you've done i'd love for you to just kind of list a, a few of the other adventures um and then after that a lot of people i hear this when people talk about water but when they have an interaction with the water or they go on adventures they have they come back with a massive respect and appreciation of that element part of the world part of nature is it a similar thing with you in these adventures yeah absolutely i think when you are in any kind of environment and it's bigger than you and it's so much stronger than you it's so vast that respect is is there and it has to be there Mm. um and I think I got so much more respect for mountains, so much more respect for polar regions, um, but also any environment where, where we're, like, we're so fragile as humans. Like, we're made up of, like, flesh and, and blood, and we're so easy for us to, to get into trouble and yeah. get hurt, and our bodies are, are actually so weak. Um, and the world is so strong, and yeah. the environment and the weather conditions are so strong. Um, so you have to have an unbelievable amount of respect for it. Definitely. So what are some of the other other bits and pieces that um, you've done? Like, I could bet you list them list yeah, the other places all, that you've been it's lots of climbing in uh back to africa a few times yeah. um north africa east africa south america spent uh, did a desert expedition once in jordan which was like two weeks of, of hiking pretty pretty much unsupported which was hell i'm definitely a cold weather person <laughs> um, well it was minus 45 degrees in, in, in antarctica in yeah. wow yeah. but plus 35 in jordan i could, couldn't Very hike different. it yeah nice. um, spent time in greenland spent time in the alps Living in Scotland, I now yeah. run an adventure company. So we take it's called Ocean Vertical. Yeah. And we take people into the ocean in the summer, paddleboarding, surfing, uh, co-steering, and then in the winter we head up to the Highlands and do mountaineering in the Highlands. Oh, that's so cool! So yeah, loads of adventure around Scotland. Definitely. And the question leading off from that is: be interested to know the best moment you've had on any adventure, and then the hardest moment that you've had on any adventure. Oh, you can take question. best and hardest in any kind of fashion, whether physically or mentally. I guess with the best, one, th- I, lo- I mean, there's so many, like every single day you go out in the mountains or the ocean, you have incredible experiences. But I think the one that springs to mind and will always stay with me is a day in Antarctica. It was maybe like day 49, 50, no, maybe, maybe like 50, I don't know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <But> <laughs> around, was, around yeah. the late period, yeah. <laughs> it all blurred all <laughs> at the end. Um, but I was close to the end. Um, and it was a day where, it was a strange day because I woke up and there was no sound whatsoever. And in Antarctica, there's always noise around you. It's always windy. The wind's always blowing pretty strong. Your skis scrape along as you ski. Your tent shakes. Your clothes, like, scrape against each other. Your sled scrapes behind you. So there's always noise. And this day, I remember sitting down on my sled and just looking around me, realising that something was missing. And it took me a little while to work out what was missing and why this day felt so strange. And I realised that there was no wind, like, not even a breath of wind that day. And it had been super windy the whole expedition. And with that lack of wind, when I sat down still, there was just absolute silence. Like this unbelievable, deafening silence. And there was no one around me for, I don't know, tens, hundred miles or something. Um, and for me, I think it was probably the quietest place in the world that day with absolutely no wind, no people around, no life around. Um, that was incredible. Really, really incredible. Wow, amazing. And then the, the, the most difficult moment. It's been so many. Yeah. It's been so many. Um, Probably on Everest. Yeah. The majority of Everest was really hard. Um, that first time. The first time. I think coming down the descent the first time was really hard um, because we 
managed to get up there and, and summit quite early. But that meant we met all the queues on the way down. And we met them at the worst possible place on the Hillary Steps. It was myself and my Sherpa going Lakpa. And we kind of got stuck on the Hillary Step for maybe an hour and a half, going on two hours, trying to slowly push our way down past these crowds. Oxygen ran out, nearly died. Lakpa saved me. Um, yep. <laughs> that was probably uh, my first moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose nearly dying would be up there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so what's next for you? What's the next adventure? What can you talk about? What, what What's the next challenge? Good question. And one I always get. Um, but there's no huge expedition on the horizon, which actually feels quite nice. Um, I think Antarctica took so much from me. Mm. And getting back from that, we were straight into COVID and lockdown and everything. Um, so travel wasn't an option for, for a couple of years there. Um, so instead of traveling, I spent my time in Scotland. And I've just written a book, which is about the blue spaces of Scotland. So the ocean, the locks, the rivers, the canals for doing water sports. So for surfing, kayaking, wild swimming, um, paddleboarding. And it's a guidebook to 65 of my favourite locations, from the outer Hebrides to huge highland locks at like 700 metres to so cool. city centre, blue spaces. And it's got the theme of blue health running through it, how we need these blue spaces for our, our mental health. Mm. Um, so that's just come out at the beginning of September. So working on promo of that at the yeah. moment, um, which is, yeah. It's that sounds like, that's really cool. That's yeah, really, really cool. It's nice to ground a little bit more in Scotland. And, and yeah, and in, encouraging people to get outside yeah, that tie with mental health as well and why it's so important. So, um, yeah, no, it's amazing. Yeah, I spent a lot, I guess I spent a lot of the last 10 years doing trips myself. Amazing trips. And I'm so lucky to have seen the places I have, but it's nice to share them a little bit more now. And inspire people. Yeah, I hope so, definitely. And kind of leading on from that, um, I offered you a piece of advice from Laura at the beginning. It's now your turn. It can be about adventure. It can be about you. It can be about anything. So it's a piece of advice to offer the next guest on the podcast. Good question. Um, and I think it, it has to be to aim big and aim high. And once you get that ambition, that one thing you want to do, like for me, it was climbing Everest when I was 21. It felt huge. It felt unachievable. But then working out a route and a plan to get there and breaking that down. So I think it has to be aim high and then decide how you're going to get there. I love that. Molly, it's genuinely been very inspiring and interesting talking to you. Thank you for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And what I said there was genuinely true. It was honestly incredibly inspiring and almost mesmerising to hear about the adventures that Molly's taken on and some of the things that she experienced. I mean, travelling that long on your own towards the South Pole is unbelievable and with great respect to Molly she just looks like and and is as such an almost unassuming just lovely soft-spoken human being and just the fact that you look at her and go you've traveled up Everest twice you are the youngest you know person to do so from England you have traveled 60 odd days through the South Pole on your own carrying 100 kilograms on your back you know dragging it along I mean it's unbelievable unbelievable and I uh, just want to say thank you to Molly for jumping on the podcast and talking through these experiences so that you guys can hear them if you want to inspire a friend a family member a partner then forward this podcast onto them let them know about Molly's story and all of the other podcasts in our back catalogue and the ones that we've got coming up very soon as well let's grow this amazing outside and active community and lastly, make sure you check out the two sponsors we have on this episode of the podcast. Firstly, Life Tidy. It's a safe, secure and stress-free organisation app which can assist you with all your life admin and to give you financial oversight. 
takes all of the stress away so that you can focus on your physical fitness. And don't forget, we have an exclusive discount to make your subscription for a year £19.99p when you use the code FINANCIALLYFIT1122 at lifetidy.co. And of course, check out our friends at Pegasus Ultra Running who put on events that are literally perfect for people who want to take on their first ever ultra trail run. They do events ranging from 30 miles up to 50. And remember, there are no cut-off times so you can do it with friends, family, or on your own without the pressure of having to think about those annoying cut-off times. And you can get a 10% off discount when you sign up in November to one of their events in 2023 when you use the code Pegasus2023 at checkout. And you can make the most of that by heading to PegasusUltraRunning.com. And with that, it brings us to the end of this episode on the Outside and Active podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, enjoy the outdoors.